0: This summer we're preaching our way through the book of James and besides writing this book, James is best known for being the brother of Jesus and also for pastoring the early church in Jerusalem. Jesus and James grew up together in a poor Jewish family where they learned the scriptures backwards and forwards as an adult, while the apostles Peter and Paul traveled throughout uh, the Mediterranean to spread the good news of Jesus. James stayed in Jerusalem, pastoring the first Christian community. When persecution struck, much of his church was scattered across the Roman Empire. But James loved his congregation, and he wrote this letter to encourage them in their Christian growth. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to open to James chapter 4. It's right after Hebrews. It's on page 230 in the Pew Bible. When I was assigned this text, I discovered a few things. Uh, Do you know whose favorite passage this is? Nobody's (laughs) pastors often skip over this section. Commentators don't have much to say about it, but as I studied it, I was converted. Uh, This is one very clever passage. I was amazed to discover the man behind the words, James the Jewish brother of Jesus and passionate pastor, became more real to me. This passage, more than any other, reveals the close relationship that James had with his brother, Jesus. And Pastor James sees his flock being slowly seduced away from God without even realizing it. So he brings all his rabbinic training forward to confront these hidden temptations that are every bit as real today for you and me. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the truth of your word? May we understand what James is saying to us and give us the ability to respond in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, James and Jesus were masters at knowing when to be straightforward and when to be subtle when to get people's attention, and when to get sort of around our own self-deception. Now, Jesus used parables, we all know that, but James used something different. James used scriptural teachings that his people had memorized. Now, I'm still learning the straightforward, subtle thing, so I'm just going to tell you what James' big concern is. This is his main point. Repent and serve God alone, not false gods. Wow. Straightforward can be deadly boring. (laughs) Serve false gods. uh, Serve God alone, not false gods. Most of us would be thinking, I already do try to serve God, and I've never had anything to do with false gods. And that's exactly what James' hearers would have thought, and that's exactly why he didn't say it that way. Subtle is much more interesting. Let's look at how he did say it in just four short paragraphs, and I invite you to keep your Bibles open. First, he accuses them of murder and coveting, battling and fighting in their attempts to get what their sinful appetites demand. Now, everyone knew the church wasn't having fistfights, and nobody was murdering anybody. So why was James using these words? He certainly had their attention. Then he starts talking about asking and receiving from God. And this language is the tip-off. James reveals his close relationship with his brother Jesus by lifting language right out of the sermon on the mount and combining it with his own words to help his people see the truth. Jesus said, everyone who asks will receive because God loves to give good gifts to his children, to those who ask him. And when you and then James responds, you don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask God, You ask with wrong motives. I bet every person here at one time or another has asked why God hasn't answered your prayer. And now James has everyone second guessing their motives. Could my motives be why God hasn't answered my prayer? Maybe I do spend too much time focusing on my own desires. And then it dawns on us why James used the word murder. Jesus also talked about murder in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus quoted the Sixth Commandment and interpreted murder to include even anger and insults. He said, it's like murdering someone in your heart. Well, James' congregation was sure it wasn't guilty of murder, but now they're squirming a bit. It's tough to argue with Jesus. James' strategy of double-teaming with Jesus' teaching is starting to get through. Okay, so maybe we do get sometimes frustrated with one another or a little bit passive-aggressive. Maybe a few of us have some anger issues, but really, is that all so bad? Next, James accuses them of adultery, spiritual adultery, basically idolatry. And also of putting their friendship with the world before their friendship with God. Check it out. Now another penny drops. Murder, covet, adultery... Idolatry, putting something before God. That's five of the Big Ten Commandments, just in the first four verses. Suddenly we realize James isn't double-teaming, he's triple-teaming. He's not only pulling language from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's also bringing in Moses from Mount Sinai with Yahweh's Ten Commandments. Like James, nearly everyone in, in his mostly Jewish Christian congregation, they knew the Big Ten They knew God loved and delivered his people and gave the law so that they could live in love with God and with one another. And they kept the commandments. They weren't murderers or idolaters or adulterers, but James blends Moses and Jesus together to say, look deeper. Their pastor is deliberately using hyperbole and scriptural references to get behind the self-deception of his people to motivate them to address problems that they were rationalizing or sweeping under the rug. They realize they've broken the commandments in their hearts, especially the first one. We have put something before God. James says their first false God is their appetites, their internal desires, their pursuit of pleasure. Our word hedonism comes from this word. The church has always had people whose God is their appetites, whether they indulge in sex or food or thrills, whatever. But James probably wasn't dealing with people who were indulging their sensuality. The first paragraph says that they weren't getting what they wanted. They were coveting what others were enjoying. Theirs was a secret sin of the heart. Secret, except that it was messing up their relationships with one another, And their prayer life. The false god of appetites disrupts our experience of community and distorts our prayers. James says their second false god is the world. He says anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And we can hear echoes of Jesus saying the same thing. You cannot serve. God And mammon, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other. When the Bible talks about the world like this, it's talking about how our sin messed up God's good creation and created a whole world order opposed to God and destructive to people. Jesus frequently contrasted the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. When we are seduced by the sinful patterns of our world, it turns our hearts away from loving God above all else. And all this is enough to make James' people wonder, have we become too familiar with the world? Too accustomed to wealth and power? Too comfortable with how people are oppressed? Then James practically shouts his thesis statement. James has restrained his Signature do's and don'ts until now. Not one imperative yet, and we're already halfway through. But here it comes. Repent and serve God alone. But now, after restraining himself all this time, James rapid fires a volley of commands. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Come near. Wash. Purify. Grieve. Mourn. Wail. Change. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. James exhorts his people to face the truth about their compromised relationship with God and to repent. Alongside Jesus and Moses, James now recruits the prophets with their repentance language to help his people turn back to God. Now, the prophets were experts at repentance. God called them to help people recognize their sinful ways renounce them, and turn back to God's love. The prophets use lots of different images to get through to people, images from temple worship and marriage, purification, and mourning, just to name a few. James' staccato commands are like scriptural shorthand. He brings to mind many Old Testament images with just a few well-chosen words. Any guesses how many commands he issues here, one right after the other? Exactly ten. James is keeping Moses close at hand. And Jesus echoes, repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is near. Everyone knew that famous line. Well, by this time, some of James' people are getting the message. They are wondering, how are our hands dirty? How are our hearts impure? How are we double-minded? And how are we failing to serve God alone? He's getting through to some of his people. But there may be some who think James is overstating the case. James is making a mountain out of a molehill. He's so negative and preachy. It's not that big of a deal. He needs to just relax. Because really, I'm not so bad. I don't even socialize with big league sinners. And I even know lots of Christians who do way worse things than I do in the midst of them justifying themselves compared to other people. James, let's fly another of the big ten. Thou shalt not slander one another. When we criticize or speak negatively of one another, we are judging them, he says. And everyone remembered Jesus's warning against judging others. He said, don't judge. First, remove the log out of your own eye before you help remove the speck out of your neighbors. And then James says, when we judge others, we are sitting in judgment over the law itself. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. The Bible calls this the royal law of love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even said to love your enemies. Everyone remember that. But James says when we judge others and speak critically of them, we choose to ignore the royal law of love in favor of our own sense of right and wrong. James says we are simply justifying our own unloving attitude with the false God of religion. Instead of serving God alone and loving one another as Jesus commands, we fool ourselves and create our own religion where we get to decide who needs judgment. But James says there's only one lawgiver and one judge, and it isn't you. And suddenly we remember that Jesus claimed to be the judge in the Sermon on the Mount. He said at the judgment, people will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? And he will declare, I never knew you. These people got caught up in the false God of religion. They fooled themselves into ignoring the royal law of love in favor of lots of religious activity. They didn't really know Jesus, and they didn't repent. Well, Pastor James won't let up because he loves his people. He wants them to repent and believe the good news of Jesus. James, better than most, knows firsthand how hard it can be to repent and believe Because there was a time when James didn't believe, when James didn't repent. We remember that James grew up with Jesus and his other brothers in a devout family that made learning the scriptures a priority. You can only imagine what it must have been like for James to watch Jesus day in and day out for his whole life. But when Jesus started gathering disciples, his brother James wasn't one of them. Later on, when Jesus called James and other Jews to repent, he didn't repent. Instead, James and his other brothers decided Jesus was crazy and tried to cart him off in a straitjacket. And then James disappears from the story. He doesn't show up again until after Pentecost when thousands of Jews repented and believed in Jesus. Not long after that, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. It may have taken nothing less than the Holy Spirit's miracle at Pentecost to get James to repent and believe. This is a gospel story. James had experienced himself the good news of Jesus' forgiveness. He knew that on the cross, Jesus forgave us for all the ways that we don't serve God alone. Throughout this whole passage, James maintains a steady drumbeat of grace. He knew firsthand that God's love and promise to forgive is the most powerful motivator for us to repent. So James is sure to include God's mercy all the way through in every paragraph. He encourages us to ask God who loves to give good gifts. God gives us grace when we don't deserve it. And shows favor to the humble. God will come near when we repent. He will lift us up. Jesus is able to save. James keeps reinforcing the grace God wants to pour out on us. Most of James' people were getting the message by now. Although they weren't involved in big, visible sins, they had given in to hidden temptations and slowly been seduced further from God. Jesus has done everything needed to forgive us. Let me say that again. Jesus has done everything needed to forgive us. But James identifies four actions we can do on our end to come near to God. First, we need to check our motives. Are we angry or frustrated with one another? Is God not answering our prayers? Have we allowed our appetites to control our decision-making? We need to check our motives. Second, we need to prioritize God before anything else. Are we reserving time with God before other things crowd our schedule? Are we accommodating ourselves to our world in ways that don't square with the values of our kingdom, of Christ's kingdom? We need to seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus said. Third, we need to practice the habit of repentance. Are we regularly asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to how we are off track? Are our hearts getting softer so that confession comes more easily year after year? And once I repent, do I truly receive God's forgiveness and new life without beating myself up over past failures? We need to keep practicing the habit of repentance. Fourth, we need to refuse to speak against one another. Do we secretly enjoy criticizing others so that we feel superior? Are we showing love only to those people who are like us, people we agree with? Do we choose to love someone based on their behavior or whether we think they deserve it? We need to work on the log in our own eye before we help others with their speck. James and Jesus, Moses and the prophets all point us to the cross. Loving God and loving one another. They all agree, if we're not loving one another, there are problems with our relationship with God. That's a sign that we need to repent and get right with God. And then as we submit to God alone, our transforming relationship with God will result in us loving one another. The cross is at the center of our faith. The cross images God's love for us and frees us to repent and serve Christ alone. This is the good news. This is the good news James wants us to hear loud and clear. Amen? Pray with me. Holy Spirit, would you do your work within us? assure us of God's love, convict us of sin, renew us to new life, that we might follow Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen.